now I'm picturing <laughs> Mary with a bumper sticker on her wagon that says, my, 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 my kid is the son of God. <laughs> my kid can create your kid out of clay. <laughs> This is the Make America Grape Again podcast, produced and recorded by Cody Burkett, the Arizona Wine Monk. In this podcast, we explore wines from all 50 states in the United States of America. Welcome to another episode of the Make America Grape Again podcast. I'm your host, Cody Vladimir Burkett, CSW. I'm here with two guests who have not been on this podcast. They were, well, Sophia was on an episode of the Wine Monk on the Sake cast, but Peter was quiet. So if you guys could introduce yourself. I'm Sophia. I know almost nothing about wine. I'm just here to drink some. I'm Peter. Here I am. So tonight we're talking South Carolina. We have the Deep Water Vineyard Low Country Red Muscadine Wine. This is made from a Muscadine varietal called Esom. In um, Orthodox, keep doing that. In Orthodox tradition, an ison is basically your base when you're doing chanting, and then the chanter kind of works around and through that tone to create a sacred music space, glorify God, and to talk theology. Well, we may not do number one tonight, but we are going to talk a little bit about theology and wine, at least in the Orthodox tradition, because that's what the three of us know. (laughs) You can stop now. (laughs) I don't think you can keep it up for the whole podcast, but that would be hilarious if you could. Not and drink the wine. Often they have two or three people doing a song so they could take turns taking breaths. Well, you know, when you guys are talking, then I'll do any song. Please don't. <laughs> so, uh, Eson is a muscadine varietal. Uh, we've visited muscadine varietals a few times. This is classified as a dry muscadine wine, according to the label, but uh, dry wine in the deep south, uh, like South Carolina... Or, as we met in our Louisiana vintage of muscadine, does not necessarily mean dry in a classical sense where there is no residual sugar. Because palates differ. Also, I know Megan is not here to talk about this label. I should take a picture of this and ask her what she thinks. Megan, for those of you who know, is our normal commentator of the thing that is on label art. Graphic design. That's the word I'm looking for. She tells you if it's pretty and why. I reached out to this particular vineyard and they were kind enough to send me a a bottle of this. And they're one of their other Scuppernong wines they do from a grape called Terra. Uh, The color of this wine is pretty pale overall. Cheers. What are you guys getting on the nose? It's fruitier than I expected. Most reds don't come across as fruity at first unless they're really sweet. And this one was a little fruitier than I anticipated. It smells like wine. There's a reason I'm not usually on wine podcasts. 
Peter was raised by teetotalers and is only now really starting to discover the wonders of alcohol that he's become orthodox for how many years now? Like 13. It's been a while. Nothing is fast in orthodoxy. Except for fasting. (laughs) Which is slow. Okay, that's fair. (laughs) That's weird. This is fun for my synesthesia. Okay. This is really fun. So, I I hear taste because all of the wires in my brain are crisscrossed and I have a nifty thing called synesthesia. So where other people can just taste something and have it only be in their mouth, I can't. I also hear it like I'm listening to music. And most reds are on the lower end of a piano or chanting or some sort of nature sound, wind through trees, or a good thunderstorm or something. This is not. This is a lot brighter than I anticipated. This is the unearthly wail of a really strong alto who's trying to drown out her flat companion. Um, probably singing something really bright and intense. Like something from Posca where she's surrounded by people who are singing enthusiastically but a little off key so she's being incredibly powerful so it has these very strong powerful alto line notes going through it but because it's alto it's a lot softer than the deeper stuff I usually get from reds it's very interesting can you kind of fun. imitate that tone for us kind of definitely Christos Anesti though the more I taste it this is very very Pascal. Which is a pity, because Pascal's over. Uh, Ooh, let's see. I'm a soprano, so... Yeah. I don't know. Mm. I'm 10 or, 10 or 11 miles away from most chance downs. Christos <laughs> <laughs> in public (laughs) yes yes you have for all maybe at most right now 150 of my listeners that's still a lot (laughs) but yeah that's basically what this is about the size of a good parish at Posca this is this is what that tastes like to me though that very very alto line but definitely Posca is and it's much brighter than I anticipated but Sort of Greek Pascal, so it's got that edge of mournfulness that reds usually do. Yeah. Peter, what are you thinking when you taste this? He's going to say it tastes like wine. My synesthesia has it orange. Okay. Yeah, that's right. You do taste everything in colors. Yeah. Which is really not much I can say about it other than it tastes orange. So, when my synesthesia kicks in, it mostly kicks in in mental images of things. Moments where, like, this wine makes me think of this sort of moment. Yes. <laughs> but uh, the the image in my head that this wine evokes is sitting on a pier or a dock in a, a marshy lake on a late summer afternoon. You've got a fishing rod. You're maybe having a beer. Um, 
herons are flying overhead. You, the air is thick, and there's a thunderstorm building, and it just everything smells green and wet, and everything is green and wet, and you're thinking, can I get one more fish before the storm rolls in, or should I start packing up? Sounds like Peter's kind of ideal weekend, except for the fishing there. The smell, the heaviness. Yeah. But maybe it's just because I'm sitting in Washington, D.C. right now. Well, College Park, Maryland. Where it is delightfully humid. It feels great. Wonderfully Like I'm alive. (laughs) I'm wilting because of the humidity. It's wonderful. Peter is a swamp thing. (laughs) Yes, I am am a cactus. terms of actual tasting notes and and see here's the thing that we're getting with with this discussion on synesthesia and wine here before we talk a little bit about theology and wine is that there really isn't a wrong way to do tasting notes tasting notes that you see on a menu are sometimes one day's worth or in some cases completely and arbitrarily made up and our winery half the time we would just guess what the tasting notes would be when they were done and put it on based on, like, traditional varietal characteristics for how this grape often manifests in Arizona. What did you do if you opened a bottle and it was completely wrong? Well, in that case, either I would yell at Allie to change the menus and change the tasting notes, but in that week or so that it took for that time, I would tell people, again, that, you know, tasting notes are subjective... And they are, even if they're on a list on down, you know, people taste different things over their life. People eat different things. People have different ways of describing characters. And so even in that sense, even if there is an objective list that's like correct for how I taste a wine on the menu, it's still not going to be the way that you taste a wine. I mean, definitely not the way you taste a wine. Um, <laughs> not me. <laughs> not, not the way that, say, someone listening to this podcast would taste that wine. What I might describe as huckleberry, they may have never tasted a huckleberry, so they'll call it boysenberry, or alternately they'll be a pedantic sommelier and be like, this is red currant fruit. Uh, sommelier tasting notes are very rigid and the idea is that supposedly everyone will have the same ideas in mind when they describe in mind but in reality like all things it's much more subjective than that I was reading the book Cork Dork and Bianca Bosco there talks about how you know everyone talks about using this chevre as a note or not chevre some herb that starts with a C that's not the one that goes with goat cheese I know what you mean yeah that's not literally cheese. Yes. Um, it's some sort of green herb. And so, actually, you know, she heard about this practice of, like, putting these actual ingredients in, like, a, a cup, wrapping them up, putting perforations in the lid of the aluminum foil, and you smell it through the foil, and you have to guess what it is. And no one said what that actually was, which was this thing that everyone in the group was throwing out left and right for things. And then when they realized that, like, no. Really? Oh, okay. Let's then not talk about it. (laughs) I'm glad I don't have to write tasting notes because mine would be very strange. Like the wine I had the other night, which I announced. Oh, yeah, I know what this is. This is Gregorian chant. Yeah, Dies Irae done on the black keys, as you put it. Yes, it was. (laughs) It's a very unique flavor. Which is one of the reasons why I asked you to play that on the piano today, but I didn't think to... Saffers, no play on the black keys. 
I don't think you can. I think I you can, need at least one white key for that. Yeah, I, I can hear it like that, but that doesn't mean you can actually replicate it in real life, which was the other downside of my synesthesia is I can't always replicate the sounds I taste, which is really frustrating when I find something I really like. And then I go, that sounds really pretty. I'd like to hear it without having to be eating, um, which isn't great for my waistline. If the only time I can hear a pretty sound is if I'm eating. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to go replicate it, and I just can't find a way to make that sound happen. So, Eson in great form is a strain of muscadine. I believe, well, it was named for the nursery that it was actually developed at, which was called Eson. I want to say it was in Georgia or South Carolina or Florida, somewhere obviously in the American Southeast. And it's a fairly new muscadine strain. I want to say it was developed from Noble crossed with another different muscadine varietal. This is only the second winery where I've seen a wine made from Eson available to the public. The other was a winery in Florida called Strong Tower. I lost my train of thought, but what else is new? Has Megan commented yet? Yes, she has. Megan says, Hmm, I'm actually pretty okay with this label. I like all the different fonts. They all work well together. I like the picture with the dock, and everything seems balanced with the plain, plain black on the bottom. There's something slightly off, but I'm not sure exactly what. I've been drinking for several hours. <laughs> I do actually rather like it, though. The question is, will she still like it tomorrow when she hasn't been drinking for several hours? Maybe. The back is a bit lacking. It's still nice and classy, but some more description of this wine would have been nice. And I I agree. It would have been nice to know a little bit about the, the grapes that are used in this other than muscadine, which I know because the website said so that it's Eson. But, uh... I was disappointed it did not say Eson anywhere on the bottle. Yeah. So, theology and wine, at least within the Orthodox tradition. It's a big thing. It's kind of important. Oh, only a lot. Yeah. Just only a lot. Only a lot important. The key. There is no real key. Well, yeah, I guess there is a key. The the key, I guess, is probably remembered that uh, Christ was incarnate in an agricultural society. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There really wasn't a non-agricultural society in the Mediterranean, arguably, in the first century AD. Maybe the city of Rome itself. Maybe. Uh, in the city of Rome itself, and probably the other very large cities, there were. it was not hard to be urbanized thoroughly enough to have no real connection to the land. Yeah. But, but there are only a few places in the world you could do that at the time. Yeah. So the the bulk of civilization at the time, yeah. especially in that area, was very agricultural. And, and one of the big things in the Roman world, and, and also in the ancient uh, Judean world, uh, was wine. There is a lot of Old Testament talk about wine. It's also some of it is talk that the Protestants have liked to take as like, this is why wine drinking is bad. Most of it's, this is why getting really drunk is bad. Yeah, and then you also have things like the psalm we read every night of Vespers, which I can never remember the number. Naturally, now I'm blanking on it too. 104? 103? Something like that. It's wine maketh glad the heart of man. Oil to make his face cheerful, and wine maketh glad the heart of man. All makes my face cheerful anyway. Oh, yes. <laughs> but does it make your heart glad? Often, yes. It should. <laughs>
Well, before we even get into the Eucharistic theology. I think, uh, I think the first Old Testament mentioned is with Melchizedek. Yes. Yes, that's right. You were going to do your Melchizedek rant. Right. So, Abraham was... I'm, I'm, <laughs> uh, so, Abraham, uh, we think of him as this guy wandering around with his family, but it says that he... That, so... There was a, a coalition of kings from northern Mesopotamia had just raided Sodom and had carried off Lot, Abraham's nephew, who had been living in Sodom. Abraham was not pleased with this, so he says he numbered his homeborn servants 318. So he had 318 servants who were, by implication, men of military age. Which implies that he had probably, if you include the old men and the children and the women, probably one or two thousand servants. So he was not some dude with his family. He was a rather powerful Bedouin chief with the extensive tribe surrounding him. Or possibly you might even call him a king, depending on the context. So here he sends his army... Chases down Cerdelamer, who had been the Mesopotamian king to do the raid, rescues Lot and a bunch of stuff from Sodom, and returns home with all of the stuff he took. Partway there, right near Jerusalem, the king of Sodom met him, and Abraham gives the king of Sodom all his stuff back, saying, I don't want any of your stuff. It has Sodom cooties. I don't want it. But at that time, the king of Jerusalem, king of Salem, it says, Melchizedek, who was also a priest of El Elohim, came out with bread and wine. And this is, at the time, somewhat remarkable because wine, at the t this is just at the end of the period where wine was for kings and priests only. It was too sacred for commoners. Melchizedek fit the requirements doubly, but he decided in that moment that Abraham counted as a king, even though he was not urbanized at all. He was un he was semi-nomadic. He was not. His tribe wasn't weren't farmers. They were herders, and they they would live among the farming tribes in between the cities, but. He was being treated as a king in this way. This is seen in a religious sense as being the, the, the first type of communion. And then you also have Noah in Genesis before this, which shows some of the examples of why you don't get drunk. Uh, but on that, but the, the interesting subnote on Noah uh, as regards wine is that one of the earliest massive production sites, archaeologically speaking, for wine, is a cave on Mount Ararat. So even if you don't take the Ark story literally, in the sense that there was a boat with a dude and his family who had two of everything, it's still recalling, hey, this is where wine came from and where it spread from. Which I think is really interesting from a, not only a religious standpoint in terms of talking about the biblical truth in archaeology, bum, 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 
um, which I think all three of us have issues with a lot of Protestants talking about that. Yes. Because we're Orthodox. We don't have to take things literally. They can be, but they don't have to be. Whether you take the Noah's Ark story as, um, pardon the pun, gospel truth, <laughs> um, there is a kernel of truth there for regarding the origins of wine, at least as the people in Mesopotamia and the Palestine area saw it. As like a cultural reef. This is where wine came from. Or more, because there is glass here. Yes. For me, in terms of tasting notes, uh, I get a lot of earthiness, almost a, a flint and spice and moist clay or moist potting soil. On the nose, I get like stewed fruit, like stewed strawberries, stewed cherries, almost a tomato character too, weirdly enough. Um, it's not, not in a bad way, like almost like roasted tomato uh, or, or good marinara sauce. Uh, and then there's also like green greenness. It's that moss feeling in it. Sort of like moss or, or forest floor or bitter herbs, uh, to continue our biblical metaphor. Yeah, almost like uh, fresh cut grass. <laughs> Peter's making a face. He's allergic to grass. No, <laughs> granted, when we, as I think I've mentioned to you in the past, you guys specifically, and I, I know I mentioned this on the podcast. We're not literally talking like, oh, yeah, they put fresh-cut grass in here. Definitely not. No, it's just kind of like your brain interpreting these different molecules and putting words to them, which, you know, again, as, as I've said before, words are hard. On the palate, the palate is pretty much like the nose with decent acidity, uh, a little bit of residual sugar, and also, again, like that sort of bitter, woody earth. I don't think this was aged in oak. I could be wrong. They did not send me tech sheets, and I forgot to email them for specific, like, production notes because probably not good for smart making. It doesn't sound like anything that's usually in oak. It doesn't yeah, sound Yeah, muscadine, like to my knowledge, is almost never aged in oak. Uh, and I really don't think it should be aged in oak. Now, that being said, I think amphora aging for muscadine would produce a very interesting wine. I don't know that. And I know that there is someone in Arkansas somewhere that makes an amber wine out of Scuppernong. But I don't know if he ages that in an amphora or not. Uh, Mostly because I tried to reach out and he never got back to me uh, on my email request. But, you know, that happens. Anyway, so South Carolina is a state. Oh, shit, Sherlock. For many years after Prohibition, the only winery in South Carolina was the Tenor Brothers Winery, which was established in 1953 uh, in the town of Patrick by Sal Luke and Al Tenor. James Trulick was the next opener of a vineyard in South Carolina in 1978. He started drinking in War Valley. He was instrumental in getting the farm winery bill passed in the summer of 1980 which was intended to encourage the planting of wine grapes in South Carolina. It reduced the tax from 57.5 cents to 5 cents a gallon and permitted tastings 
and sales of wine to the winery premises. The winery closed in December 1990 because he went back to dentistry. Several other attempts were made to start wineries in late 1970. The most ambitious was a 600,000 gallon winery in Woodruff called Oakview Plantation. 1975, Richard L. Lazier had a juice plant that he wanted to convert into a winery with the intention of producing a market for a large local muscadine growers. But wholesalers opposed the winery, and as did the distribution channels. And so the wholesalers and distribution channels were able to curtail wine sales entirely. Basically, it closed in 1979. It reopened under a new name in the 1980s, but by 1990, it had closed as well. The oldest of the 10 wineries that were open as of the writing of this book in 2009 is Montemorency Vineyards. Robert E. Scott Jr. was the winemaker. According to Wikipedia, there are now 12 wineries in South Carolina. Thank you for being good sports about this, by the way. I really appreciate it. It warms the cockles of my heart. I thought it was wine that made it glad. That too. Wine and making my friends jump through hoops and doing silly things that make me giggle. And you know us in the Russian tradition, we like wine so much we even have extra wine after communion. This is true. This actually reminds me a little bit of the typical Zapivka wines yeah. that are usually served, which are a little sweet. Again, they're made... you. In America, anyway, they're usually Concord. Yeah. Because everyone uses Manischewitz for communion in it's the Russian really tradition. Not communion. We only use it for Zapivka. Give us some credit. Okay, that's true. Yeah. I would not, not be... You do not receive Manischewitz out of the chalice. Thank you. Yeah, I've seen it put in the chalice, though. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Our, our synod has actually stated there's these, I think, four different... Mm-hmm brands of wine and the specific types and you can order one of these four and those four are acceptable and the synod has said use one of these four and that's it okay others other synods are more flexible uh, yeah but ours just decided that they were tired I, I suspect the bishops were just tired of getting asked can i use this kind and they said one of these four which uh, as long as done to the our manashevitz i'm happy no, no not but, but, but again that zippy the z- zippy doodah zippy zippy zip, zapivka zapivka <laughs> I'm going to call it Zippy Duda on Sunday, you know. <laughs> yeah, I won't. So the, the, when the, the first Russians or Rus uh, were, were Christians, the, the, the Greek monks were explaining how to do this Christian thing to them. So, so after we receive communion, then you consume something to wash it all down. And the Russians were like, can we have wine? And the Greeks were like, I guess... We usually use holy water, and all of the Slavs went, Oh, wine, yes, we have wine here. (laughs) No, no, water, wine. So we have wine. Terrible thing to be Orthodox. Indeed. Such a tragedy. And then on particularly significant feast days, how significant depends on your local parish practice, the evening before we have the litia, which is the blessing of bread, wheat, wine, and oil. The oil in current practice is used to anoint all the people present as a sign of hospitality. 
the bread and the wine are then consumed, and in current practice, the wheat is usually just tossed outside of the birds because no one knows what to do with it, though actually I think it tastes kind of good, so I'll nibble on it if I'm, at, if I'm back there. The wine is poured over the bread, which is cut up into pieces, so you don't drink a cup of wine and eat a piece of bread. It's consumed together. The clergy usually get a cup of wine. Yeah, also. the clergy get it separate, but not the, not. The clergy need something to drink because they're going to be chanting the whole night, so... Speaking of, of chanting the whole night, what was that wheat used for historically? Eating. Was, it would okay. have been used for eating, and in some cases was was put aside to be ground into flour to be used for, for prosphora. Okay. And historically, also that that wine that wheat, that oil was often used for cooking. Huh. Uh, this this is the lichia blessing was for food that people would be using as food, particularly blessed food, and they would eat as much of it that particular night as possible. But they would also bless larger amounts of it than we currently do in practice and send it home with people. So people would take home this, these wheat berries, a small amount of wine, a loaf of bread. And, and, and monasteries especially would have eaten. And would consume these or use them to cook for their families or to cook for their communities. And because part of orthodoxy is communal eating. That's our central tenet. So because communal eating is such a big deal for orthodoxy, wine itself being used liturgically means that we view it the same way we view lots of other things we do communally. It's very important. And so it gets used constantly. The very first miracle that Jesus himself did was more or less, let's keep the party going. Yeah. Um, the wedding let's, let's in Cana. Be fair, most Protestants have no problem with wine. That's true. It's their teetotaling Protestants are a very small sliver of Protestantism. But they're the most vocal in America. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And when I was working in the taste room, people would come in and be like, "Oh, I don't drink wine." It's like, why then are why you are you here? <laughs> well, I'm here to tell you that wine is evil. Okay. Thank you. It's like, no, it's not. You should charge them a tasting fee. I thought about it, <laughs> but people tend to bitch on Yelp about that. Anyway, so literally what happens is the, the wedding of Cana, they're running out of wine for this wedding blessing. And Mary, Christ's mother, the Theopokos, as we call her because we're cool like that, we won't get into the whole theological ramifications of that term here because that's way out of our wheelhouse. Way out of the wine wheelhouse. Yes. So, TLDR, not going to talk about it. Use your local Wikipedia. Use your local Wikipedia or ask an Orthodox priest or ask your Orthodox friends. They will be happy to tell you. Don't ask an Orthodox friend, <laughs> Anyway, Jesus' mom, Mary, asks, Hey, can you fix this? And Jesus goes, It's not my time, Mom. No. And in classic mom mode, she goes, Uh-huh. Turns to the servants and says, Do what he tells you. And in my opinion, then left out from the text is the meaningful mother look she then gives him. As, as yes. a mother of children myself, there is the look you give your children when they're just going to do it now. Anyway, so the final point getting into the orthodox take on wine and theology is, of course, the big one, communion. Peter, come in favor of him. <laughs> Would you explain to the listeners a little bit of the finer points of why we Orthodox use wine in the communion chalice instead of, you know, Welsh's grape juice? 
But for one thing, Welch's grape juice wasn't invented until the early 20th century when a Methodist minister, whose last name was Welch, uh, was feeling a little bit embarrassed about preaching about the evils of drink and the necessity of teetotaling, and then serving communion, which was made out of wine. So he invented grape juice, which had never before existed after the up until this point, grape juice had only been something you would, could maybe drink immediately after squeezing the grapes. Yeah. But he figured out how to pasteurize it in the right way at the right time that it will stay grape juice until it goes completely bad. And this is Reverend Welch, who then sold Welch's grape juice for the purpose of Methodist communion. So we don't do that because most of the existence of the Orthodox Church has been before Welch was born, and so there really was nothing besides wine and not made out of grapes at all. And even within wine, under normal circumstances anyway, we would not just use any old wine. It has to be red wine because red is the color of blood. I would hope you can tell the difference between wine and blood, but since it becomes the body and blood of Christ, not visibly, but we want to at least have it so that you don't have to have to try to, you, know, you want to make sure you don't have to keep reminding yourself this represents blood or this is blood because it, it at least is red. And in a opaque chalice, dark red's red enough. Yeah. Um, if it actually does start to look or smell or taste like blood, there actually are procedures to follow because something has gone seriously wrong because it's not supposed to look or smell or taste like blood. It's supposed to look, smell, and taste like red wine, but that doesn't happen very often, unfortunately. Also, it has to be sweet, or at least somewhat sweet. And the reason for that, from a chemistry standpoint, is we are also adding hot, boiling water to it and it helps the mixing process as it were yes rather than you know using cold water and a dry wine it just doesn't mix as well we also or so use, i've been told we also use hot water because it needs to be hot like blood yeah it's, it's part of this all, all imagery and and tactile thing all sensations in the orthodox church are designed to evoke a deeper feeling so even though these things exist and we know that they are earthly and we know that they are physical they are supposed to evoke something different water is added to chalice twice uh, once is once is during the well uh, it's the second time yeah. is after the consecration, just before people start to commune, hot water is added to the already consecrated chalice to bring it to the proper temperature. The first time it's added, though, is... The, the liturgy of preparation. Yes, uh, where the priest is saying, from his side flow blood and water as he pours simultaneously into the chalice wine, wine and, and water. water. In the Greek tradition, the water is water. Ordinary water, no particular temperature uh, specified, so presumably room temperature. And in the Russian tradition, it should be hot water added right then, because in an unheated church in Siberia in the winter, the child's going to freeze. If you don't. <laughs> so you want to yep. <laughs> give it a head start and not freezing. I, I have also heard that there are very many complicated theological reasons for that, but... No, Russia's cold. Yes. Theological reasons always follow. Yeah. Yes. But the main reason is that Russia cold winter. 
As I tell my little pre-K Sunday school students, everything you see has two reasons. It has the holy God reason, and it has the we are human reason. The we are human reason for this I mean, is that it's very, very cold. <laughs> Thank you guys for, for joining me tonight. Uh, this has been the Deepwater Vineyards Low Country Red, Muscadine wine made from Esong as the main grape. Your future as a choir director expands. Good, good, because I can't sing worth shit. <laughs> <laughs> but on that note, gang. Um, Indeed. What's the Russian toast? Nastrovia. Nastrovia. This was an episode of the Make America Grape Again podcast, sponsored, produced, and recorded by Cody Burkett, the Arizona wine monk. You can reach us at Make America Grape Podcast at gmail.com, on Instagram at, at the AZ Wine Monk, or on Twitter at CV Burkett. Be sure to also check out our website, Make America Grape Again left my kid in another city while I was walking for three days, but at least when I came back he was smarter than all those old people. <laughs>